The Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre is proud to host the 17th Annual Lighting the Fire Conference in partnership with the Western Canadian First Nations Administrators Education Conference, May 6th through the 8th in Winnipeg, Manitoba. This year's theme is Where Eagles Gather, a First Nations Education Leadership Summit, bringing together the best of Canada's Indigenous educators for three days of workshops, guest speakers, and the Lighting the Fire trade show. Join us in celebrating First Nations education. You are now listening to Thunder Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Hello and welcome to the first podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. I'm your host, Kim Kakigamek. The idea of doing podcasts is something we've been talking about for a while here at the Centre, so it's very exciting to see it come to fruition. And we are hoping that it will be a place of conversation with local Indigenous people about a variety of issues, so we are absolutely thrilled that our first guest is Michael Hutchinson. He is host and producer at APTN National News. So I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Mike Hutchinson. Thank you. So we are here with Michael Hutchinson, the Hello. anchor of APTN. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you for letting me be a part of it. It's pretty exciting. Manitoba First Nation Education Resource Center is a great organization, so I'm pretty happy to be a part of it. Now, I understand you are originally from Grand Rapids and then moved south with your family. So in your younger days, what was your experience in school like? Uh, well, we started out, one, that's one of the reasons my parents brought us south, actually. Mm -hmm. um, the schools up north uh, in northern Manitoba in the 70s weren't all that great. Um, you know, we lived in Genpeg, which was a hydro town, um, and the lady who taught me to read there used some sort of hippie method um, that eventually when I got down south, they had to teach, basically teach me how to read all over again. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, um, the schools are much better in the south, and that's why I brought... But I graduated high school from the Lactabani Senior High. Uh, I left home shortly after my 17th birthday. Mm -hmm. So um, I graduated high school working a full-time job, uh, you know, renting an apartment, uh, you know, being a little dumbass in some ways. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, um, yeah, you know, graduated high school. It took me a year longer than it should have, but, uh, you know, I, I, I finally got it accomplished and, and did it all while I was paying for the bills myself, I guess. Oh, you could wow. Say. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I guess what, maybe in high school more so, what kind of student were you? Were you like kind of the... You know, it's weird. I was an angry little kid because of, of some stuff that happened to me when I was younger. Um, so when I got to be a teen, I started getting angry about stuff, oh, okay. you know, and uh, stuff I didn't quite understand, but... Um, uh, and so I was always recognized as one of the smartest kids in class, but as far as my homework goes, as far as me acting out in class, I did all that. Um, you know, when it came to writing, I guess, uh, the reason I, I really started creative writing and, and getting into journalism was because I was in band 
from grade seven till nine. I played the flute, uh, but I was a, I kept making the band teacher cry, uh, just because I was a little little <laughs> no. monster. Oh, no. um, and so in grade ten, they basically told me I couldn't take band. So they put me in this other course called Enrich Fundamentals, which is basically a teacher who didn't want to create a curriculum, who put out full scap and just basically said, right. Right. Yeah. You know, it was like, this is the room where we house kids who are no longer in bad class <laughs> sort of thing. And uh, so that's where I started writing, was in that enriched fundamentals class and uh, started writing poetry and, and creative writing. And, and that's where I, you could say my writing started to get recognized by people. Um, uh, was in that enriched fundamentals class. And, uh, you know, um, apologies to Mrs. Sinclair, my bad teacher, uh, for uh, all the terrible names I called her. I was her and, just going to ask you that. Did you ever go back and apologize to her? Um, I'm doing that right now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Mrs. Sinclair, I hope you're listening. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, that's really interesting. So you didn't, like, when you're in this class and just told to write, you just, you did it, obviously. You didn't, like, rebel and say, oh, I'm not going to do this. This is stupid. Yeah. Well, you so know, it was a tougher been... teacher in that class, uh, Mr. Unfried, and, and um, you know, yeah, I've, there were teachers in high school. We had a Mr. Dubinsky, and there was me and another boy, Jason. Mr. Dubinsky told me and Jason to wait outside the front door before class every day. And he would come to the front door and basically tell us whether he could take us or not. And if he couldn't take us, he'd just tell us to go, and we'd get an, he wouldn't mark us absent. He'd just say, I can't handle you guys today. Just don't come to class. Go. <laughs> and uh, that's probably not the greatest thing to say about Mr. Davinsky as a teacher. But, uh, you know, I was a challenging kid uh, to any adult because of my anger issues as well as, um, you know, I, I read a lot. Uh, and oh, so yeah. I knew a lot. And so, um, you know, when you're a, it, it's bad enough being a teenager, you think you know everything, yeah, but being a well-read teenager, and, yeah. uh, you know, you definitely think you know everything, and which, of course, I didn't. Yeah. So then, was there ever, was there a specific teacher then that impacted you a oh, lot? Oh, yes, you, certainly. Yeah. Uh, we had, you know, um, I had a lot of good teachers, uh, you know, people who really cared about who... That what they're teaching, you know, Mrs. Augustine, Mr. Nally, you know, I guess my favorite teacher would be Mr. Classen, which was our Eng English teacher, okay. and he was sort of a, you know, kind of a hippie type, I guess you could say, you know, he's very laid back, you know, if you wanted to be in class, you were there, if you didn't want to be in class, you weren't there, um, but, uh, you know, he made, I was a reader, and I loved reading, and he made books interesting, and, uh, you know, a good English teacher is almost a bit of a psychologist, you know, in, in how, agree, yeah. you know, you have to know the human experience and sort of be able to tell, uh, touch and tell about that human experience in order to be a good English teacher and to pull, you know, the meaning of what a book actually is out of it. Um, and Mr. Classen was good at that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So even though you were perhaps not the best student, it seems you always enjoyed learning. So can you tell me a bit more about your thoughts on learning in general? There's a difference between learning and education, right? Learning yes. is, to me, learning is when you take your education into your own hands and make it who you want to be or make it what you want it to be. Uh, personally, I think people should be learning every day. Um, learning is... Uh, you know, learning can be done in a number of ways. You know, as, for us as First Nation people, we shouldn't, there are many sources open to us for learning 
that are traditional um, that we can go and, and talk to, elders and that sort of stuff. Um, books are a great source of learning where people can go out and, and, but through these tools you can create your own learning and learning um, is something that should be driven by interest, right? You're interested in things and so you go and explore those things. Education is sort of organized learning, right? Where you go to an institution and or even, you know, a teacher, but, but uh, mostly nowadays an institution where they, they have a direct curriculum mm -hmm. and you learn mm -hmm. what they want you to learn and you jump yep. through their hoops and that yep. sort of stuff. So as somebody who is a learner, <laughs> yes. I, I have a great appreciation for learning and to a lesser degree education, but certainly that's an important tool. Um, so when I left home and I graduated high school, I set about going to learn. And mm -hmm. so I um, went to the city, I explored a lot of different things. Uh, not all of those things were good things to explore. Uh, I got involved in, uh, you know, involved with people who were not doing very good things and oh, that yeah. sort of stuff yeah. as a young man in my 20s. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I did a lot of learning. Eventually, um, I sort of got into, I had a friend who was in journalism, and, and they sort of recommended this course called Creative Communications at Red River Community College. That's the course I took. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, I took uh, uh, the first year of Creative Communications, um, and then that summer, I got a job doing catering for rock concerts and movie shoots. Uh, wow. So I did between you know 1990 and 94. I did most of the dressing rooms for most of the bands who went through Winnipeg. Oh wow! Um, so I've done dressing rooms for you know Pink Floyd, the Rolling Stones, Metallica, uh, you know Guns and Roses, Skid Row, Tina Turner, Tanya Tucker, you know all, most of the bands that went through Winnipeg wow. through that four-year stretch, and uh, it was a great learning experience. Because of that, I did not go back and get my second year okay. of create uh, so I do not have a degree in communications at all um, I did go back eventually I moved to Calgary uh, because of some of those bad things that I was doing it was a good time to leave the city it was sort of like either jump in with both feet or mm -hmm. jump out mm -hmm. so I jumped out oh, okay. um, and uh, so I moved to Calgary I did take some more journalism courses there again but again didn't complete the program because I got a job uh, being a reporter. Um, so, you know, I do have a great appreciation for education, um, but I'm much more of a learner mm -hmm. than a student, I yeah. guess you could say, when it comes to education. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, you know, I was kind of wondering when you asked me to do this, you know, cause, because I am, I'm not anti-education, hmm. okay. but I am, uh, I am, when it comes to post-secondary education, I am disappointed that the merchants are so heavily involved. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. And <laughs> yes. I've heard other people say the same thing, that, you know, education is not just a room that you sit in yes. and listen to someone well, speak to you, you know? Like, yeah, and we've got to be careful, too, because of our traditions, you know, you go out and become an expert um, fur trapper. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, you're, you know, you're like an expert plumber. You know, like you've learned, you may have not jumped through the hoops and got the, the on-paper accreditation that yeah. a, a plumber has, but yeah. you've gone out and learned and you have a, you have a skill. You have uh, something that you can use to, to, you know, bring you know, resources into your family, yeah. you know, something that you can, you can fill your days with so that you're a productive member of your community. 
you know, as Aboriginal people, we have to consider our traditional sources of learning mm -hmm. and our traditional areas of learning, like our language and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we, it, it's just really easy for when we think of education to just think of white, uh, well, I don't want to say white, but Western European education, yeah. right? Yeah. There is so much more to learn that, that isn't covered by Western education. Yeah. It's, it's a struggle that I think all Aboriginal people deal with. Um, you know, for example, here, I work on TV. Mm -hmm. Now, I work at APTN, um, which is the Aboriginal People's Television Network, but there's this old guy named Marshall McLuhan who said, the medium is the message, right? The medium is the message. How you present your information is just as important as the information you're presenting. So okay. now for us at a TV station, you know, um, there are so many indigenous stories that happened out on the land. So many indigenous stories that happen in little communities all over. Uh, but for us, we need electricity. So going out on the land is a major challenge. Yeah. So some of those stories don't get told very well. So what happens is that because of our medium, we can't be 100% Aboriginal because we need, right. we need electricity, we need cities, we need places to plug in, we need the internet, we need yeah, all these kind yeah. of stuff. So ultimately, TV is an assimilationist medium, right? Yes. It's, it comes from the urban environment. And we didn't have urban environments. You know, the closest we got was longhouse people. So, so ultimately, TV is assimilationist. But how do we make good TV that is indigenous? You know, yeah, and, and there is a yeah. mix there, you know, it's, it's a challenge. But ultimately, my medium is an urban medium, and it is ultimately sucking people into the city. Yeah. In, in heart and in mind. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and that's something, you know, I, de I struggle with. And, and mm -hmm. I can see Mifner dealing with the same issues when it comes to the difference between learning and education. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that does lead me to my <laughs> next question, um, that I was going to ask you, based on what I read on your Twitter feed, okay. I'm an avid follower of your Twitter oh, feed. Okay. I just cool. love it. <laughs> um, but you seem to have this gift of balancing the traditional with the, um, well, with the Canadian society, yeah. with your traditional um, culture and beliefs. And I was wondering if that's just something that comes naturally to you or if you make conscious choices to, well, there's to a couple of things I'll say about that. First off, um, an elder once told me, if you don't speak Cree, you ain't Cree. And oh. I agree with that elder, say 75%. Okay. I don't speak Cree. And uh, I call myself a Cree person. A, a, you know, I also have Métis in me. Um, but, you know, one of the greatest embarrassments of my life is that I don't speak my own traditional language, right? And my mother, when I asked her, why didn't you teach me Cree? You know, she grew up in racist, you know, 1960s, 1970s Manitoba. And she said, if you had an Indian accent, you wouldn't be able to get a job. And that's why I didn't teach you Cree. So, um, so that is the greatest embarrassment of my life. Let me get that off my chest right away. Then there's another idea, the idea of assimilation. Now, a lot of people s look at assimilation as, as sort of a cr finish line that you cross, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And, and, okay, well, you crossed, now you're assimilated. So you're over on that. Yeah. yeah. But assimilation, if you look at it, its dictionary meaning means to become more the same, okay? So that is a process. 
It isn't an end result. So each little step that we take, each little shade of gray that we take away from, say, 1941 Indian towards modern Western European urban-based person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. um, each one of those little shades of gray is a step towards that other thing, right? And so for me, I sort of acknowledge that and that, you know, where am I and as far as, you know, on that line of grayscale. And, yeah. and, you know, I n make a point of, if not fighting, at least noticing every step, every little shade of gray that we take towards assimilation, okay. the end result, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's better for people to look at it that way because there's so many indigenous people who say, well, I'm doing this, but, you know, I'm not that yet, so I'm not assimilated. Mm -hmm. Well, you may have just taken a small step closer, right? Okay. And, yeah. and if, you, if you don't acknowledge those small steps, then you're going to end up at that finish line and not even realize you're running a race. You're at the end already, yeah. Yeah. you know? And so that's another part. But also, um, I think, you know, I had a great-grandmother who... Uh, you know, she taught me First Nation values and uh, First Nation values about family and about caring people. My grandmother, uh, Angelique Cook, always had, uh, you know, a pot of stove, or a pot of stove, a pot of stew on the stove, on the stove you know, for yeah. people to come in. Um, you know, she was very proper as far as First Nation etiquette goes, okay. you know, and that sort of stuff. And um, so, yeah, I owe her a lot. Uh, my stepdad's a white guy. Um, but, you know, my grandmother had 14 kids, and some of my aunties have 12 kids. So my stepdad was, and I, I shouldn't call my step he's my dad. Mm. Uh, my stepdad uh, was a single child, and so all my influences Ooh, wow. were from my mother's side, which was the First Nation side. And, um, and, you know, I had my uncles, you know, even with their other problems, uh, were hard workers, you know, people who cared about their community and, you know... Da, 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 da. So uh, I guess I don't know. Uh, my Twitter feed isn't is just an expression of me, yeah. uh, rather than yeah. a a created thing. I guess you yeah. could say. You just seem to know so much and be so. Well, yeah. I appreciate that. I've had <laughs> a lot of good teachers. Like I've worked, you know, um, I worked at the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs uh, oh, as a yeah. director of communications yeah. for a while. Um, I've been lucky in that I, because of my experience, I worked. Um, you know, I've worked at the Indian Claims Commission. I guess there's a, yeah, I'll tell, I might as well tell that story. I, I crossed the desk. I was a journalist for a while in Calgary. I, I started um, at a couple of newspapers, and then I got on Aboriginal Times, which was a supplement to the Globe and Mail. I worked my way up from reporter to managing editor, mm -hmm. but then I crossed the desk. I got a job offer in Ottawa at the Indian Claims Commission. So I moved from the journalism side of the desk to the communication side of the desk, okay, and I yeah. became a writer for the ICC. Um, and that gave me a great amount of experience because it, when you're a First Nation Indigenous person, you know, especially if you care about the issues, you get involved with the issues at home. And so you learn the history of your community. You learn the history of your treaty area. You know, it, it's very difficult to figure out, well, what are the Blackfoot doing over in Alberta? Or, you know, what are yeah. the Dene doing up in, in Yellowknife? Well, because of my experience at, at the Indian Claims Commission, I got to read land claims. Uh, and, and land claim, the documents surrounding land claims, and then the ICC uh, minutes and proceedings. And so it gave me a very good um, national perspective on what's oh, going on yeah. across the country because yeah. these 
land claim documents are basically mini histories. Mm -hmm. And so by working these out, and I had to basically rewrite them so that they were for a, 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 an audience, you know, like a, a regular man yeah. audience rather than yeah. lawyers. And so I was very lucky in having that sort of experience. And then here in Manitoba, I worked at the AMC, and then I worked at the Treaty Relations Commission. And oh, so yeah. gathering all that, or listening to all that oral history from the elders that is all treaty-based, you know, in Manitoba was a great experience as well. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I, because of my pursuit of learning, that's all I can brag about, I guess, <laughs> is that I have that desire. It is those teachers, those elders, those, the experiences that other people have given me that have, uh, have you know, contributed to, to my level of knowledge, I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah, the people that are willing to take the time. Yes, exactly. All I contributed was the desire to learn <laughs> and sort of the memory that it got stuck in. Yeah, yeah. So what advice would you give a young person who is interested in doing some of the things you've been doing, journalism or writing? or? Um, well, if you're interested in writing, the first thing I'd say is writers write. No matter what kind of writing you're doing, whether it's creative writing, poetry, you want to write TV shows, you want to write you know, anything, writers write. And so um, sitting down in that chair for an hour a day and writing something, whether it is a journal, whether it's a poem, whether it's half a poem, whether it's half a short story, whether it's an outline of a short story, I don't care. <laughs> Just sit down and write. Just sit <laughs> yeah. down and write for an hour a day. That's how you become a writer. Um, journalism is still, because of the way society is today, it's, it's, and because of the merchant's involvement in education, it is hard to get a lot of jobs nowadays without having that piece of paper. Journalism is, and I say this tentatively, is one of those um, industries where you can get to a certain level without the need for education. But you've got to know how to write a story. You've got to know how to do it. You better have done it if you want to get into it. Um, because, you know, especially if you're not going to go with the education path, if you're just going to try and do it. Yeah. Uh, but it is possible in journalism. Obviously, something like an engineer or a doctor, you, know, you need that piece of paper, yeah. right? But journalism is something that you, if, if you've done it, if you can show an editor that you can write a decent news story, you still might get hired without that piece of paper. Communications as well, although, although um, um, you know, that is something that you, you might need that piece of paper for now. It's always changing. The other thing that's changing is, is TV itself. Mm -hmm. um, people are watching TV on their phones. People are, you know, everything yes. is digitalized now. Mm -hmm. So whether there are going to be actual cable TV stations in 10 to 15 years, I don't know. Yeah. You know, um, there, of course, will always be new shows. There, of course, will always be... Uh, TV, or, you know, productions of shows, mm -hmm. whether those are going to be shown on TV or whether they're going to be shown in digital format, yeah. you know, Netflix. that is <laughs> certainly in change. Netflix, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's something even here at APTN we're dealing with uh, because mm -hmm. of, of all the changes. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's so much transition happening right now. It's hard to give concrete advice to somebody. But I would say, you know, if you're going to, if you want to be a writer, put your ass in the chair and write. And that's, that's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so switching gears a little bit, okay. um, I just wanted to get your opinion or what you think are some of the biggest issues regarding First Nations education. Um, well, I, I think it's just the quality of First Nation education is not up to a standard where 
a young person who graduated on reserve is going to be able to go out and get a decent job. And I, I say that in general because mm -hmm. I know there are, are certainly of schools course. out there and communities who are doing amazing work. You know, organizations yeah. like the Manitoba First Nation Education Resource Center are doing amazing work. Um, but, you know, the issue of funding. You know, we've had the 2% cap on since 1996. Mm -hmm. um, the Education uh, Act recently came out. And, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of people, you know, there were people who were against it, people who were for it. Uh, you know, um, but ultimately that money that Canada admitted was a shortfall in that mm -hmm. whole thing. You know, Canada admitted that there is a shortfall of funding here. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, since that fight, you know, that it, it just got wiped away and nobody's, you know, it, there's that shortfall, you know, and, and yeah. Canada just, and Canadians, you know, it's not just the government. Canadians know this and they're not pushing their government for change um, uh, is, is, is a huge factor yeah. to come, to, to overcome. You know, when, when uh, uh, a provincial school gets, you know, five to 6,000 a student and an on-reserve school gets, you know, two to four, you know, that is, that's going to make a difference in the quality of that kid's education. And if yeah. Canadians are serious, you know, they, they're talking about equality and they say, you know, we just want to give these kids a, a leg up. Mm -hmm. Well, then do it yeah. and, and understand that there's a price tag associated with that. Yeah. And yeah. if you're serious about Canada being so-called equal, then yeah. pony up, yeah. you know. Um, there are other issues too, you know, getting good teachers. Uh, you know, a good teacher, you asked me about uh, who my favorite teacher was before. You know, getting a good teacher can make the, the difference in a student wanting to learn or not wanting to learn. And having teachers who are committed to teaching those kids, uh, they're just not, you know, jaded yeah. curriculum stampers, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is an important thing. And, you know, giving... Uh, the teachers and environment and as far as pay as far as a place to stay as far as um, you know uh, not getting heck from the chief because they failed the chief's kid or yeah. you know something like that creating a, a nest for our teachers is important uh, so that they feel comfortable enough to teach and and when they feel comfortable enough to teach they'll do a better job of fitting in our communities and becoming a part of our communities mm -hmm. and Ultimately, that's what a teacher should be, is somebody from your own community who, who cares about your kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then what do you say to, because I always hear this, it's just so frustrating to people who say, oh, more money isn't going to fix anything. We were always throwing money at things and it yeah. never fixes anything. Yeah. Well, so. th that is a, a good point. Uh, Canadians, when they say that, you know, they why do the Indians, actually, here, I'll tell you this story. There's a... I was talking to an old, when I worked for the Indian Claims Commission, I was talking to an old land claims negotiator, mm -hmm. uh, an old guy, very, he always worked for the government, but he was a very open-minded gentleman, a uh, nice guy, and uh, he told me this story once, that uh, this younger land claim negotiator came to him and said, why do they always ask for money? All they want is more money. And the old land claim negotiator said, that's all we have, that's all we offer. Oh. Right? So Canadians got to understand that their system is based on money. Right? That's if, a really good point. If, if, the government gave, if the government gave a herd of cows to a First Nation, the news reporter would sum up those cows in a dollar figure. $5,000 worth of cows were given to the First Nation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Everything in Canadian society is valuated. So 
Of course we have to ask for money. There's nothing There's else nothing we can else ask, ask for. for. You know? We need 365 pencils. You know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So when people say, you know, all they ask for money, that's all Canadians are offering, right? Yeah. Um, there is a point, though, that other things need to be solved other than the money issue. The money issue is huge. But, for example, from the First Nation perspective, First Nation, you know, we have Mithnerk, which is a group of people working to solve problems in a number of communities. That is an important thing, right? We have to realize that our nations are not our communities, or they're not a single community. Grand Rapids is not a nation. It is one community in the larger Swampy Cree Nation, which is one sort of province in the larger Cree Nation, right? Yeah. So what we, what we have to do is band together so that we can create curriculums that cover a bunch of schools, right? Yeah. My elders say you are the land you live on. So people from a certain landscape get together and create a curriculum for your children and do it as a group because by doing it as a group, you're cutting down costs. Right, mm -hmm. so they won't be have to throw so much money at you because you're doing it as a group, and and those costs are being, you know, one group if it covers five communities will be able to do mm -hmm. a much better job at, for much less than five groups trying to or cover those five each, individuals' yeah. communities. Yeah. So we have to understand, um, and part of that, you know, is making those old links again between our communities, between our nation. Right, uh, colonialism has destroyed some of those links. Mm -hmm. um, our own backstabbing and our own fighting over the years has destroyed some of those links. And and then even the very fact that some of our cultures were nomadic to begin with, and so putting a whole bunch of non-allied families in one community, you know, is something that is doesn't exactly fit our culture, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when we were in nomadic cultures, everybody around us was an ally. You know, when you put a whole bunch of Cree families together, they might not all be allies. Right, yeah. and and so, um, so you know, there's a lot of things that we have to overcome on our side. But what it, the most important thing is that we're doing this for our kids. You know, if we want to rebuild our nation, that means recreating the connections between our communities and between our families, and mm -hmm. and he healing some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, money isn't all that needs to be thrown at the pro problem. Certainly, money does need to be thrown at the problem, but it isn't everything. We need to do some work ourselves. Okay. Well, thank you no so problem. much. And on that note, we end our conversation with Mike Hutchinson from APTN. We just want to thank Mike so much for agreeing to be our first guest uh, on our podcast from the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center. It was so wonderful to chat with him. So thank you, Mike. And for our next podcast, we are going to be offering a kind of soundscape, a collection of interviews and presentations from our upcoming education conference. The conference is the 17th annual Lighting the Fire Conference, and this year it will be held in conjunction with the 11th annual Western Canada First Nations Administrators Education Conference. It will be, the event will be May 6th to 8th in Winnipeg at the Victoria Inn Hotel and Convention Centre. And we hope that all of you listening will come to the conference. It's going to be a fantastic event. We have so many wonderful speakers and presenters and musicians planned. And if you want more information, you can go to our website. It is www.mfnerc.com. So thank you for listening, and we look forward to preparing our next podcast for you. Thank you. <laughs>